In God's providence, the title of this Lord's Day message is Holy War. Holy War. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, please, with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Dear saints, there is a holy war on for the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a holy war on that the King of Kings The captain of our salvation has enlisted you as a soldier to fight a good fight in. There is a holy war on that has raged since mankind fell in Adam. A war against God represented in the heart of Cain. As Cain brought the sacrifice of his hands, as Cain brought the works of his hands, as Cain brought a system of works righteousness that God rejected, and Abel brought blood sacrifice, which God received. And Cain raged against Abel and rose up and killed him. Since the fall of mankind, since the first two sons born to mankind began the war one against the other, the true faith of God delivered to mankind, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the blood sacrifice that God would provide, versus the dead religious works of man's sinful hands. That war has raged From the beginning of time, from the fall of man down through this age. In the long history of Christ's church, there is no more ancient foe than the church, the false church of Rome. John MacArthur has more succinctly spoken to the evil of the church of Rome than any man I know. He has spoken to it without nuance. He has spoken to it without neutering the truth. John MacArthur says, In the long war on the truth, the most formidable, relentless, and deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. It is an apostate, corrupt, heretical, false Christianity. It is a front for the kingdom of Satan. It is a front for the kingdom of Satan. It is Antichrist. It's Antichrist from its Pope, to its priesthood, to its sacraments. It's Antichrist from the moment you walk in the door to the moment you leave. It is Antichrist in its baptism. It is Antichrist in its Mass. It is Antichrist 
in its purgatory. It is Antichrist in its prayers to Mary. It is Antichrist from first to last. The Church of Rome is Antichrist. It is against Christ. It sets itself up in place of Christ. It is a blasphemy of Christ. It is an enemy of Christ. There is a holy war between the false church of Rome and the true church of Jesus Christ. And we have been called by Christ to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, to fight a good fight, to engage in gospel warfare, to refuse to call peace where there is no peace, to refuse to compromise. In your bulletin, there's an article from Legionnaire Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry, dated October 25th, 2019, from Dr. Stephen Nichols. And it's titled, What is Reformation Day? A single event on a single day changed the world. It was October 31st, 1517. Brother Martin, a monk and scholar, had struggled for years with his church, the church in Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by an unprecedented, unprecedented indulgence sale. The story has all the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster. Let's meet the cast. First, there is the young bishop, too young by church laws, Albert of Mainz. Not only was he bishop over two bishoprics, he desired an additional bishop, archbishopric over Mainz. This too was against church law. So Albert appealed to the Pope in Rome, Leo X. Leo X greedily allowed his taste to exceed his financial resources. Enter the artists and sculptors Raphael and Michelangelo. When Albert of Mainz appealed for a papal dispensation, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with the papal blessing, would sell indulgences for past, present, and future sins. All of this sickened the monk, Martin Luther. Can we buy our way into heaven? Luther had to speak out. You understand the sale of the indulgence was such that you would purchase this piece of paper, this parchment from Rome, and in that purchase, your sins, past, present, and future, or the sins of other dear precious family members, departed or yet living, those sins would be absolved through the payment of cash to the Church of Rome, which would fund this great art project, which would fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica under Pope Leo X. Martin Luther, a scholar, took quill in hand, dipped it in his inkwell, and penned his 95 theses on October 31st, 1517. These were intended to spark a debate, to stir some soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church. The 95 theses sparked far more than a debate. The 95 theses also revealed the church was far beyond rehabilitation. It needed a reformation. It needed to be reformed from the ground up. Because the church was not built upon the Holy Scriptures. And worse, the church was not built on the rock of Jesus Christ. It needed to be torn down and rebuilt from the bottom up. Reformation. The church and the world would never be the same. One of Luther's 95 theses simply declares, The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would add this, you must understand, the church of Rome has stolen the treasure, has defiled the treasure, has suppressed the treasure of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Tradition always brings about systems of works, the systems of Cain versus the faith of Abel. It always brings about systems of works, of earning your way back to God. It was true of the Pharisees, and it was true of medieval Roman Catholicism, as well as present-day Roman Catholicism. Didn't Christ Himself say, My yoke is easy and my burden is light? Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. What is Reformation Day? It's the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of the darkness. It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers to help the church find its way back to God's Word as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindles the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing. And it led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. You must understand... In Protestant churches, in Reformed churches, there's a pulpit in the middle of the church. In Rome's church, there's an altar. In Protestant churches, the Word of God is in the middle of God's church, sitting on a pulpit, being preached. Because it is the revelation of God. How sinners might find the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. In Rome's False church, there's an altar where they re-crucify Christ daily and offer Him up to be eaten and drank for justification in the transubstantiated idol of the wafer in the cup. It is fitting that I preach the very first sermon from this brand new pulpit commemorating 20 years of preaching on Reformation Day. For with the Reformation came a revived focus of preaching the Word of God versus celebrating sacraments. For it is by faith that sinners are saved, and it's by the preaching of God's Word that sinners come to faith, as faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. What is Reformation Day? It is the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of the darkness. It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's Word as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindles the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing. It led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It is the celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation. So we celebrate Reformation Day. This day reminds us to be thankful for our past and to the monk turned reformer. What's more, this day reminds us of our duty and obligation to keep the light of the gospel at the center of all that we do. On the front of your bulletin, it says, here we stand. What are we standing on? 
There's a Bible sitting on a pulpit that looks a lot like this one. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Sola De Gloria, to the glory of God alone. These are the five pillars of the Reformation. Here we stand. Here we stand is a quote of Luther. When called upon threat of death to recant all that he had written, his 95 theses and more, he said, I cannot and I will not. Here I stand. Saints of God, by the grace of God, here I stand and you stand with me. In Christ, in his gospel, walking according to the light of his word, engaging in holy war against all those who would war against Christ, war against the doctrine of Christ, war against the gospel of Christ, war against the word of Christ, and war against the word of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon was a faithful warrior in his day, fighting a holy war against the Roman Catholic Church in his day, like we must fight yet in our day. There are still 1.5 billion Roman Catholics perishing under the false gospel, the Antichrist gospel of Rome. The war has not changed. The war rages on. Charles Spurgeon said, False gods attempts to represent the true God, and indeed all material things which are worshipped are so much filth upon the face of the earth, whether they be crosses, crucifixes, virgins, wafers, relics, or even the Pope himself. We are by far too mealy-mouthed about these infamous abominations. God abhors them, and so should we." To renounce the glory of spiritual worship for outward pomp and show is the height of folly and deserves to be treated as such. Spurgeon said elsewhere, It is the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. And as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. Do you know in our day to even use the term Antichrist makes you a joke? It makes you a joke. You're to be scoffed and ridiculed. What an idiot, what a divisive man to use the word antichrist. If you dare use the term antichrist appropriately and rightly apply it to the church of Rome, to the pope of Rome, to the priesthood of Rome, to the sacraments of Rome, oh, a hue and cry will rise against you. From unfaithful men who would make peace with the antichrist, and stand at war with Christ while professing to be followers of Christ. If you're at peace with the Antichrist, you're not at peace with Christ. If you're at peace with the Antichrist system that's damning a billion and a half souls, you're not at peace with Christ and His gospel. Spurgeon again, It is the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. And as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. If it be not the Popery in the Church of Rome, there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. If there were to be an issue, a hue and cry for Antichrist. Bring us Antichrist. 
We should certainly take up this church on suspicion. And it would certainly not be let loose again. For it so exactly answers the description. The church of Rome. Spurgeon continues. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel. When he says popery, mind you, he's speaking of all the popish doctrines, all the decrees, all the catechism, all the priestly absolutions, all the priest's craft, which is no different than witchcraft. It would just as likely save you as witchcraft. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is the Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood. And for Christ, because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of His glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of His atonement and lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Savior and a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost and puts mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it because it is against Him, we should love the persons though we hate their errors. We shall love their souls though we loathe and detest their dogmas. And so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces toward Christ when we pray. We must pray against Antichrist because it wounds Christ. Because it robs Him of His glory. Because it puts sacramental efficacy. In other words, the sacraments are the power of God unto salvation, says the Church of Rome. It puts sacramental efficacy in place of His atonement. It is finished to telestai. And lifts up a piece of bread in the place of the Savior. Through the heresy of transubstantiation, the heart of Rome. The heart of Rome is the Antichrist wafer. The heart of Rome around which the whole system is built, is that Antichrist wafer. It places a piece of bread over and above the Savior. He sits at the right hand of the Father, having completed His work and sat down. And a few drops of water in the place of the Holy Ghost, because they sprinkle a few drops of water from the hand of the priest upon a baby, and they declare the baby regenerated. They declare the baby was born in sin and trespass, dead to be alive through the power of the Holy Spirit and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and to now be a member of the church because a priest sprinkled water and pronounced hocus pocus in some Latin phrase upon the unbelieving child. Friends, this is heresy. It's damnable heresy, meaning it damns souls, which is why no man... No man, I don't care what letters they have after their name, I don't care what esteemed institution they stand at the helm of, I don't care what past faithfulness is behind them, if they stand today declaring to you they know Roman Catholics who are saved, they're a liar, and the truth is not in them. To be saved, you must repent of unbelief and believe the gospel. And all that Rome is, is unbelief. You cannot simultaneously be Roman Catholic, hold to that which is an abomination, that which is a blasphemy of the gospel, and also be a Christian and hold to the gospel. You must repent of one or the other. 
If you understand the gospel sufficiently to save you, then you understand the heresies of Rome, the Antichrist doctrines that oppose the gospel, sufficiently to repent of them and be saved by the true gospel. I cannot say it strongly enough. It doesn't matter who pronounces their Roman Catholic priest friend to be a genuine Christian. It doesn't matter what famous evangelist, Luis Palau, who pronounces the Pope to be a brother in Christ and a true proponent, a true minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are liars and the truth is not in them. To be saved, you must repent of unbelief and believe the gospel. Whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're Jehovah's Witness, whether you're a Mormon, you must repent of your unbelief. Whatever dogma you're holding to that is contrary to the true gospel, you must repent of it and believe the gospel. And the two happen simultaneously by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and all those whom the Spirit has regenerated. It's a miracle of God. But it's a miracle that is not sans evidence. The evidence of the miracle of regeneration is repentance of unbelief including Catholic unbelief. They are unbelievers. They are not Christians. They are unbelievers. They have not believed the doctrine of Christ, the gospel of Christ. If they have believed the doctrine of Christ, the gospel of Christ, then they are no longer Catholics. Praise God. There are many former Catholics who are now Christians, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ and His Tetelestai alone. And that is our mission. There is a vast mission field. 1.5 billion Roman Catholics walking this earth, perishing in their sins, believing that their baptism, their infant baptism, a few drops of water from a priest's unholy hand, unholy water from an unholy hand, saved them. Believing from then on as they went regularly to Mass, eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, that their sins were continually atoned for, bit by bit. Not imputed righteousness by grace through faith, but imparted a little part at a time through works, the work of the church, the work of the priest, and their work through their obedience Wholly contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saints, there is a holy war on that most of the church has called off. The compromised church, the ecumenical church. But we must continue to war on for the glory of God and for the souls of men. Just yesterday, just Yesterday, down at the abortion clinic, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ, the necessity to war on was exceedingly evident as the evangelical church was partnering there at the abortion clinic under the so-called ministry of the 40 days for life with the Roman Catholic Church, declaring themselves to be united together in service to Christ, seeking to rescue the unborn, subjugating the gospel beneath the goal of rescuing the unborn, sacrificing the gospel, beneath the goal of rescuing the unborn. We have long refused to be part of that ministry or any ministry like it. For the gospel trumps all. 
the primacy of the gospel exceeds all other issues. Not by a little. The ministry of the gospel is why there is a cosmos, why there is a earth, and why Christ came into the cosmos and walked this earth. Let's break it down. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So that's what we are all about. Now, praise God, we want to see babies rescued. But we will never, ever, ever subjugate the mission of the gospel beneath the mission to rescue babies. They are light years apart. The one is infinitely higher, so much higher, you can't even see the other from its lofty heights. Oh, if we rescued every baby but led them not to Christ, they would live long lives of sin and die and abide in hell into the wrath of God forever. And praise God, we can minister for the life of the baby and for the eternal souls of the mothers and fathers, doctors and nurses, and Roman Catholics who are there too, simultaneously. Ministering the Word of God. The law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law that is a tutor to bring men to Christ to be justified by faith. The gospel that is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Gospel compromise is rampant. Rampant. Even in conservative, biblical, reformed circles. The two largest Bible churches in our area, Cedar Mill Bible, Southwest Bible, one north of us, one south of us, are wildly compromised with the church of Rome in many ways. But the most evident and clear way is their long association with Luis Palau and his ministry. Luis Palau, as I quoted earlier, declared the Pope to be his brother in Christ and a true minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luis Palau has long partnered with the church of Rome and the priests of Rome, having the priests of Rome, these antichrist priests, at his events, at times even, allowing them to receive confession and absolve the confessors, handing out rosaries so they can tell the confessors to say so many Hail Marys to work off their sins. Antichrist. Oh, dear saints, the compromise abounds. Luis Palau has regularly filled Southwest pulpit. Luis Palau sits on the elder board of Cedar Mill Bible. Both churches support it financially. Gospel compromise is rampant. Let's get to the specific points of heresy. I want you to have clarity on the heresy so that you might have clear conviction and so that you might be equipped to minister to your Roman Catholic friends. Galatians 1, 6-10 should light a fire in your soul for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you might engage in holy war. Galatians 1, 6-10 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel 
which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That must be your heart. For that is the heart of God. Not the heart of a wild-eyed apostle on a bad day. It's the heart of God. As the Spirit of God compelled him to stand up and defend the gospel from the Judaizers. And if there is a system on the earth today, like the Judaizers of old, it is the church of Rome and its sacraments. We should marvel that anyone would turn away from Christ. We should marvel that anyone would compromise with the church of Rome. We should marvel that anyone would partner with the church of Rome and subjugate the gospel beneath any other goal. Now, I am happy the Roman Catholics are at the abortion clinic. Most happy because we have the opportunity to love them with action and truth and bring the gospel to them that they might be saved. Secondarily happy because I want the unborn to be rescued. And I'm glad for their testimony to that end, although they engage in that endeavor in an unbiblical manner that is less effective than it would be if they would actually believe God's word and engage in a biblical ministry. There is a holy war on, and we are called to war against these antichrist doctrines. The chief antichrist doctrine of Rome I've already spoken of briefly is the mass, Roman Catholicism's false sacrifice of Christ in the Mass, the current binding, authoritative catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which our Catholic friends must repent of if they have believed the gospel, which they must repent of in order to believe the gospel. Their current catechism, paragraph 1323, says, quote, At the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharist sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross through the ages. To perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross through the ages versus it is finished. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross through the ages until he should come again and so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed. Christ is consumed. The mind is filled with grace and a pledge of future glory is given to us. Paragraph 13, 23 is Antichrist heresy and heresy is soul damning false doctrine. That's heresy. Paragraph 1324, the Eucharist is, quote, the source and summit of the Christian life. It's the source and summit. That's why I say the Mass is the heart of Rome's heresy. It is the heart of Rome's Antichrist doctrine because it declares it so. Paragraph 1324, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. Paragraph 1357, Bread and wine, which by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the words of Christ have become the body and blood of Christ, Christ is thus really and mysteriously made present. That's the heresy of transubstantiation. That's the idolatry of transubstantiation. That's why every time a Roman Catholic comes into the Roman Catholic Church, they commit idolatry. That's what genuflecting is. It's idolatry. 
They cross themselves, they bow. That's idolatry. You shall not make any graven images, nor bow down to them, nor serve them. Whether they be bread or wood, or stone or silver or gold, no graven image, no bowing down, no praying to it, no serving it. It's idolatry. Every Roman Catholic who is saved, one, is a Roman Catholic no more. Why? Because they have repented of the idolatry of transubstantiation. They have repented of the idolatry of mass. Mass is both idolatry and a denial of the gospel. It's another gospel in that they believe they're eating and drinking justification. It's idolatry in that they believe they're eating and drinking Christ. And they worship that Christ. The Pope and his bishops have great staves upon which they put the wafer, the host, they call it, the wafer. And the Pope has the biggest wafer of all, the biggest staff of all. And emanating forth from the wafer are these posts of gold or silver because it's emanating forth the glory of God. And that wafer is God. And the Pope holds that staff up with God on it for the church to bow before to worship their God. It's called a monstrance. And it's monstrous. It's an abomination. Paragraph 1367 says, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. They believe they're re-crucifying Christ every time they have the Mass. The sacrifice of Christ 2,000 years ago and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of the offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, divine sacrifice, because that bread is Christ. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. It is both idolatry and a false gospel. Another gospel which is not another that Galatians 1 speaks of. This must be repented of. There is no Roman Catholic who is saved who is participating in the abomination of the Mass. They must repent of the Mass. And if they don't sufficiently understand the Gospel to understand that the Mass is a blasphemy of the Gospel and the Mass is idolatry, then they don't sufficiently understand the Gospel that we could ever dare declare them saved if we love their precious soul. Why would we declare them saved while they still continue to participate in abomination, in blasphemy, in idolatry? If we love their precious soul, we call them to repent and be saved. We call them to repent and believe the gospel. For all that the Mass is, is antichrist, is anti-gospel. Paragraph 14 05, every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on. The work of our redemption is carried on versus it is finished to Telestai. The work of our redemption is carried on versus having now been justified. The New Testament is full of statements and declarations of justification and salvation that are actual, factual, and historical, meaning they've happened. You have been saved, not your being saved. What does the Word of God say? Well, the Word of God says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He, Jesus, had by Himself purged our sins. By Himself. He needs not the help of a pope or a priest or a church. He had by Himself purged our sins. Purged is what tense? Past tense. When He 
by himself, had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having purged our sins, having completed his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He'll not be called out of heaven by a false priest and his incantation. He sits at the right hand of the Father until the time of his own choosing. He stands up and returns. Hebrews 7.26 For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. Now the comparison here is between the high priest, Jesus Christ, and His perfect sacrifice once for all, versus the Old Testament priesthood and their daily sacrifices. But we can also make the comparison and the application to the so-called New Testament priesthood of Rome and the so-called New Testament priesthood of their daily sacrifice in the Mass. Christ is the final high priest with the final sacrifice. And when he completed his sacrifice, having purged our sins, Hebrews 1.3, he sat down. He sat down. Praise God. Hebrews 9.12 not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most high place, most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What tense? Past tense. Having obtained. It is completed. It is perfected. It is finished. Having obtained eternal redemption. Once for all. All of his elect. All who will be brought to repentance and faith through the power of regeneration. Hebrews 9.22 And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. What did their catechism say? Their mass is a non-bloody sacrifice of Christ. But without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So there's no power in their non-bloody sacrifice. It's a false sacrifice. It's an antichrist sacrifice. It is opposed to Christ. It's in place of Christ. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28 says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages... He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once, at the end of the age, to put away sin. Verse 27, And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. One sacrifice, past tense, accomplished, perfected, done. And then he sat down. Hebrews 10 Verse 11, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Again, the context comparing Christ's perfect priesthood and sacrifice to the Old Testament priesthood and sacrifice, but we can make application justly and rightly to the so-called priesthood in the New Testament and their sacrifice, the priesthood of Rome. 
Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Oh, they are being sanctified, but they are justified by one offering. He has perfected them forever. And then he sat down. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins. Why does Rome have a crucifix? And Christian churches have a cross. Because Christ is perpetually suffering. They speak of him as the perpetual victim. By the way, I didn't even address that in the catechism. Victim. The Jesus Christ is no victim. He laid down his life and he took it up again. He is the victor. He is the conqueror. And no man will call him out of heaven that he might be a victim again on their blasphemous altar. John 19.30, I've been quoting again and again and again and again. If you forget everything else, remember this. It is finished. That's your war cry, saints. It is finished. And don't let them scoff at it. Don't let them say, yeah, I believe that. No, you don't unless you've repented of all your sacraments, unless you've repented of that mass. Don't tell me you believe it is finished. That's a lie. Romans 6, verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Revelation 1.17 And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He lives. He was dead. But he is alive forevermore. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father until he comes on that great white horse of Revelation. Catholicism's false sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. Catholicism's idolatry in the Mass. I've already touched on. Let's go a little further with that. Paragraph 1375. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. So that bread and wine actually is converted and becomes the literal body and blood of Christ, says the Catechism of Rome. Again, unless they repent of that idolatry, they're not saved. They must repent of that. Because we love them, we must call them to repent of that unbelief. We must call them to repent of that blasphemy. See, if they believe upon Jesus, they believe upon the Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men. They believe upon the Jesus who pronounced His saving work finished and sat down. If they believe upon the Jesus and the wafer and the cup, then they are blasphemers and idolaters still. They are unbelievers. They don't believe in the true Jesus. That is a false Jesus and a false gospel simultaneously. Paragraph 1377, the Eucharist presence of Christ begins at the moment of consecration and endures as long as the Eucharist species subsist. So at the moment of consecration, the priest prays. He does his hocus-pocus incantation. The bread becomes Christ. The cup becomes Christ. They eat Christ. They drink Christ. And it continues 
as long as this species subsists. In other words, until it's digested. It's a species. Paragraph 1378, quote, the worship of the Eucharist, that is idolatry by definition. The worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing. This is their catechism, the worship of the Eucharist. We express our faith by genuflecting or bowing. We worship the Eucharist by genuflecting and bowing. Every time you see a Catholic genuflecting and bowing, they're committing idolatry. Unless they've repented of their idolatry, they're not saved. Revelation 21.8 says that all idolaters will abide in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Whether you're a Mormon idolater, you have a Jesus who's the brother of Lucifer. Whether you're a Jehovah's Witness idolater, you have a Jesus who is the Archangel Michael. Or whether you're a Roman Catholic idolater who has a Jesus that is a wafer and a cup. You must repent of your idolatry and believe upon the true Jesus, fully God, fully man, crucified for sinners, resurrected on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Saints, this is basic gospel, but somehow we have given Rome a pass. Rome that has warred against Christ for over a millennia, over a thousand years, damning countless billions of souls under a false Christ and a false gospel, and yet we would cry peace? We would say, well, you go too far using that antichrist term. You go too far saying you won't unite in the 40 days for life or any other ecumenical ministry. You know, after all, the poor need to be fed and they need blankets. Surely we can sacrifice the gospel to give out some blankets with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters? See, that's what happens. We invariably, when... We unite with them for these moral causes, whatever the moral cause might be, we invariably end up embracing them as brothers and sisters despite the fact that they are blasphemers and deniers of Christ. Worshiping the Eucharist. Committing idolatry every time they take the Mass. Committing idolatry every time they walk in a Roman Catholic church and genuflect. They must repent. And believe the gospel. And if we love them, we call them to repent and believe the gospel. And if they insist, oh, but I do believe the gospel, we must insist, oh, but you do not. Just as we would insist with a Mormon. Mormons always want to tell me, hey, we, we have the same Jesus. We believe the gospel. Yet when they're pressed, they will admit that their Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. They will admit that their Jesus died to show us how to become gods, not to save us from the wrath of God. They'll admit their Jesus was once a man who became a god not the God who became man. They have an idol, a different Jesus, a false Jesus, and a false gospel of works righteousness. They have the faith of Cain, just like Rome. Different idol, same gospel of works, just different works. And we must call them to repent of their works and repent of their idol and to confess Christ as Lord and His work as their only hope, His finished work. Paragraph 1378, continuing, the worship of the Eucharist in the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. They're adoring and worshiping the bread because the bread is Jesus in their heresy. Paragraph 1183, the tabernacle is to be situated in church in a most worthy place with the greatest of honor, the dignity placing 
and security of the Eucharist tabernacle should foster adoration before the Lord really present in the blessed sacrament of the altar. The church has a tabernacle in which they place a wafer, and that wafer rests in that tabernacle day and night. So anytime a Catholic comes in, they can worship Christ and be in His presence and pray to Him. That's why they genuflect when they come in, because Christ is there in that tabernacle. Idolatry, saints. Idolatry. And idolatry is hatred of God. Do you think me extreme? The Mass is hatred of the true Christ. And every participant of the Mass is hating the true Christ. You say, well, that sounds extreme. Well, that's the truth of God's Word. That's the light of God's Word brought to bear upon the idolatry of the Mass. What does Exodus 20 verses 4 and 5 say? You shall not make for yourself a carved image, whether it's bread or wood or silver. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth, you shall not bow down to them. Genuflect, bow deeply, adore. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Idolatry is hatred. To worship a false god is to hate the true God. Do a little experiment for me. Call another man's wife, sweetie. Your wife's going to feel like you just hated her. And she's probably going to act in a way that feels (laughs) hateful toward you. Right? Because you have just expressed hatred of her. Call another god, God. Call a piece of creation, whether it's wood, stone, silver, gold, or bread. Call a bit of creation your creator. That's hatred of your Creator. That's the Word of God. And that's what they must repent of. And that's what we must faithfully communicate out of love for them. Out of love for them. Call them to repent of this. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. I won't give my praise to carved images. I won't let you bow down to carved images. I won't allow it, says the Lord. Yet Rome commands it. Rome commands it. God calls it hatred. Rome calls it worship. Our Roman Catholic friends must repent and believe the gospel. And if we love them, we will call them to repent and believe the gospel. And when they say, oh, but I do believe the gospel, we'll say, have you ceased bowing before the wafer? Have you ceased eating Christ's flesh and drinking His blood for justification? Have you repented of the Mass? If you've not repented of the mass and its mass of abominations, its mass of heresies, then you have not believed the gospel. Mark 13, 21 warns us expressly, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. (laughs) If they say, here is Christ, he's in our tabernacle, come bow before him. Don't believe it. If they say, here is Christ in my hand, let me place him on your tongue for justification. Don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Mark 13, 26. Then they, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. You will know when the Son of Man returns. The whole world will know. 
Until that time, he sits at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No priest is mediator. No pope is mediator. No Mary is mediator. We pray to Christ and we wait for his return. In Acts 1, we find the apostles gazing into heaven after Christ ascended. And the angels say to them, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go in to heaven. What are you doing standing around? You'll see him again when he comes back from heaven in the same manner, but not until. So why would you bow before a piece of bread? We must call them to repent. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. If they make, John 6, 53 through 56, to be transubstantiation and salvation through eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ, that is set wholly against the very context in which Christ delivered it. For Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. Who gives life? The Spirit gives life. What does the flesh profit? The flesh profits nothing. And so the eating of the wafer and the drinking of the cup, as far as justification goes, profits you nothing. Because the flesh profits nothing. The Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Oh, we, we must touch on Roman Catholicism's idolatry of Mary. Roman Catholicism's idolatry of Mary. What does the Catechism say regarding Mary? It says this, regarding Mary's so-called, quote, saving office. Saving office. That's all you need. Quote, unquote. No one but Jesus Christ has a saving office. Regarding Mary's so-called saving office, paragraph 969 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. This is such blasphemy. And any Roman Catholic who will defend it, they are blasphemers. They either must repent immediately and say, I had no idea that was in the Catechism of Rome. I don't believe that. Jesus alone saves. So your question to them, the so-called saved Catholic, is have you repented of the Mass? It's idolatry and it's false gospel. No. Well, then you're not saved. You must repent. It's a false Christ. It's a false gospel. Yes, I've repented of the Mass. Okay, have you repented of Mary as having a saving office, a co-redeemer, a co-mediatrix? No. Well, then you're still a Catholic, not a Christian, not saved. You don't believe the Gospel. You just go down the line. Have you repented of baptismal regeneration through the sprinkling of the hand of a priest? An unbelieving infant being born again, made a new creature, made a member of the church, and dwelt with the Spirit of God. No, I haven't repented of that. I'm trusting in that. Well, then you're not trusting in Jesus. You don't believe the gospel. You must repent. Again, paragraph 969, taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession, continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. If you believe that, then you do not believe upon Christ. 
If you believe that, you do not believe Christ is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's the word of God. You cannot make peace between the two. I've had Catholics say, I don't believe that. As I read to them their own catechism, they're shocked. And they say, I don't believe that. And then I tell them, then you must leave the Roman Catholic Church. That is the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. And you can't pick and choose. If you don't believe that, then leave it because it's heresy. If you don't believe that, you can't mildly disbelieve that. You must hate that as God hates that. That's heresy. You can't continue to be at peace with it and just mildly disbelieve it. Well, I don't believe that. If you don't believe it truly, then you hate it truly. Because it blasphemes Christ. Because it lifts up Mary as a mediator in place of Christ. Oh, not in place of, just with. Oh, just with. That's no less blasphemous. This is a denial and blasphemy of Christ. Christ alone is our advocate and mediator. Christ sent His Spirit to be our helper. Mary is none of these things, nor is she the Queen of Heaven, as paragraph 966 declares her. Ascribing to Mary the salvific titles, offices, and works of God is gross idolatry. Bowing before a statue of Mary and or praying to her is advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix is idolatry. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our righteous. He is the advocate. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You either believe Scripture or you believe Rome. You can't believe both at the same time. You must repent of Rome's heresy and believe what the Word of God says about the Son of God. John 14.16, I will pray the Father and He will give another helper that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is the helper, not Mary. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God is the Helper whom Christ sent, not Mary. Again, this is idolatry that Exodus 20, verse 5, condemns as hatred of God. Mary is a sinner, saved by grace faith in Jesus Christ. She is not advocate, helper, benefactrix, mediatrix, or the queen of heaven. If you want to see idolatry put on horrific display, merely go to Portland's grotto and you'll see the father and the son on the back wall lowering a crown on Mary's head as queen of heaven. An appalling display of idolatry. Roman Catholicism's baptism heresy. Paragraph 1263, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. When a priest sprinkles a baby, this is what happens. By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin, all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. Then let's just skip right past all the mass attendance, Easter, Christmas, forget it all. You're sprinkled as a baby. It's all forgiven. You're all good. I mean, that is a blanket statement. And that's what Roman Catholics are trusting in. They are. 
And I have many Catholics at the start of a gospel conversation say, oh, I believe that. I believe in salvation through faith in Jesus. And I'll ask them, what do you believe about your baptism? What do you believe about baptismal regeneration? What do you believe happened when that priest sprinkled you with water? Well, I I believe I was regenerated. I, I believe, yeah, I went from dead to alive and I became part of the church. Now, then you don't believe the gospel that you claim to believe. What do you believe about the mass? Well, I believe that's literally Christ. And yeah, I genuflect. And yeah, I worship and pray to... The, the wafer in the cup. And yeah, I believe I'm eating and drinking justification. Then you don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you believe about Mary? Oh, she's my advocate, my helper, my comediatrix. Then you don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So next time, anyone says, I know a Catholic priest. He's true blue. He's a legit believer. I've got a good Catholic girlfriend. She's a true blue Christian believer. She loves Jesus in the gospel. Ask them, have they repudiated and repented of the mass? Or are they still participating? Have they left the Roman Catholic Church and all its heresies behind? Or are they still participating? Because every time you walk through the door, you're participating. If they're still participating in idolatry and gospel-denying heresy, then how have they believed the gospel? If they tell you they have a Roman Catholic friend who's a Christian, say, praise God, what church do they attend? Oh, uh, St. Mary's of... Oh, no, 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 no. Surely they attend a Christian church. Right, where the gospel is preached and where the word of God is set central on a pulpit, not a place to make an offering of a crucified Christ in an unbloody manner. Not an altar. Oh, no, no, no. They still go to Catholic church. Then we can have no confidence they're saved. They must repent and believe the gospel. Paragraph 1265 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Baptism not only purifies from all sins, but it also makes the neophytes, that's a new believer, the neophyte, a new creature, an adopted son of God, who has become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ and co-heir with them, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. Heresy upon heresy upon heresy. Roman Catholicism's ecumenical heresy. Paragraph 1129. The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. For believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. But paragraph 847 says, outside the Roman Catholic church, there is no salvation. Oh, okay, that's consistent. But it goes on to say, this affirmation is not aimed at those who through no fault of their own do not know Christ and His church. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do His will as they know it to the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. And so it's Jesus or unbelief, whichever. Both paths saved. They even go on to specifically mention Muslims. Muslims are saved too. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says you can be a good Muslim and go to heaven, denying Jesus Christ. If you have a friend who is a Roman Catholic, they are not saved. They must repent. They must leave the Roman Catholic Church. They must follow Christ. If they're still in the Church of Rome, they have not sufficiently believed the gospel that you could in any way count them saved. And why would you want to do that? That's not loving toward them. That's not loving toward their precious soul. That's not loving toward your Savior. 
They need to come out of that bastion of heresies. They need to come out of that Antichrist system and follow Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your gospel as we lift up the lies of the devil in the Roman Catholic Catechism. We see, Father, that your truth, your word exposes lie after lie for what it is. Lord, may we not be confused. May we not be corrupted. May we not be led to incremental compromise, but may we stand our ground. Here we stand and fight a good fight for your glory and the redemption of sinners. Specifically on this Reformation Day, 1.5 billion Roman Catholic sinners, unbelievers who have yet to repent and come to Christ as Lord. Bless this truth to our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.